Do I look pretty? <laughs> Go ahead. All right. We see Jesus. Hebrews 2020, and this is the last message we'll do in 2020. And so I think we'll do it as both an increment, 87, and it will double as a New Year's message. 2021 New Year's message, even as we did a 2020 Christmas message. I can't give you the title of this because that'll tell you what I'm going to name this next year. But I want to begin by reading 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity, for your faithfulness throughout an extraordinarily unusual year, for your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for keeping this church afloat, for all those who have continued in fellowship and all those who are continuing even today in the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray that you'll bless all those that are engaged in that service. And we commit ourselves to you and entrust our spirits, commit our souls, and present our bodies to you for another year in which we intend to experience your faithfulness in which we intend to approach your throne from which you dispense grace constantly, and in which we go to receive encouragement. Let Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, come into our minds in this next year, Father, and in these years to come, and make us a force for the redemption of history. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Chronicles 20.20 says this, and we kind of looked at that for 20 20 last year, the 2020 vision. A lot of other preachers did, I'm sure. It says, In the morning they got up early and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. As they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. We could say inhabitants of the new Jerusalem today. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. Now, that's 2020. Here's 2021. Then he consulted with the people and appointed some to sing for the Lord and some to praise the splendor of his holiness. You can only praise the splendor of his holiness if you see it and understand it. When they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing. Be armed with the full armor of God, you see. Give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. That's 2021. Just think about that for a minute and we'll go on. I want to read some stuff from Hebrews. How about the first chapter? How about all of it? In many parts, this is my translation, in many parts and in various ways long ago, God who spoke provisionally in the fathers and the prophets in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the universe who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive 
objective, who has made purification for sins, who has sat down at the highest height at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son today. This is the end of the year of today. I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he leads his firstborn into future world, where he is already, he says, Worship him, all of God's angels. And with regard to the angels, he says, He who makes his angels winds or spirits and his ministers of fiery flame. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, God, is for the age of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. That is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I could add it and say last night, Saturn and Jupiter align so they look like one planet. It's called the Christmas star. It happened last night. Who did that? The Lord's in control of that. The Lord Jesus is in control of that. He did that. That's why it says, You laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment and like a cloak you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment, but you're the same. You are the same. You see the same thing at the end of Hebrews. Jesus Christ, the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. You are the same, and your years will never come to an end. And to which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet? Aren't all the angels ministering spirits sent for the service and support? Of those who are destined to inherit salvation? Answer, yes. How about chapter 2? I'm only going to read the first verse. On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we've heard. How about we ought to be much more attentive to what we've heard in 2020? Lest we start drifting away. Now, right out of the gate, immediately after the exordium paragraph... 1, 1 to 4, the PT quotes Psalm 2, 7, in which God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the declaration of kingly accession. This is what is customarily said by a king when his son becomes king, accedes to the throne, comes to the throne. When a king appoints his successor, While the king still lives, the son whom he appoints is also king, his vice regent. Now, that's not like the vice president in the United States. The vice regent, in this case, is a co-ruler, an equal king to the king. In the case of the son of God, the son reigns throughout the ages with the father. His throne is forever. 
This son was not begotten in a moment of time. Not even in a pre-creation moment of time, like Arius taught. This son was eternally begotten of God in an eternal procession from the eternal substance of the Father as of the same eternal substance and essence as the Father. The Son, the eternal begotten, is one in being and in essence with the unbegotten Father and with the eternally spirated Spirit through whom Jesus offered himself to God as the spotless Lamb of God in his endurance of the cross. This is a lot of the theology we developed in Doing and Living Theology last year. Today I have begotten you means today I have declared you reigning king of the universe. The universe of angels and of human beings. Today... I give you royal, executive, judicial, and legislative universal authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus even testified to this when he asked his disciples to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. He opened his meeting by saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. It is the Father who gave Jesus that authority. It was authority given to Jesus on a certain day, the day of his resurrection from the dead. This authority was given not just to the Son as a divine person. It was given to the eternal Son, who is the man Christ Jesus through his birth and incarnation the sole mediator between God and humanity, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, and who is the mediator of a new covenant in Hebrews 12, 24. This declaration by God of Jesus as his son, whom he begot today, doesn't refer to his eternal begetting, in that case, though he was eternally begotten, in an eternal today. But this is referring to his accession to the throne of the universe, including future world, where he is already as our forerunner waiting for us. Jesus is already in 2021 waiting for you to get there. But he's also in a future world, a future inhabited world consisting of a myriad of angels, the church of the firstborn, the justified spirits of people made complete and perfect, the judge of all the earth, the judge of all, and the judge of all is the justifying judge of all. God who justifies, justifies all. That's Romans 8.33, and then backing up into 5.18, along with Hebrews 12.22 to 24. Jesus entered future world, and when he did, God the Father said, 
Worship him, all you angels. And the angels were in divisions of 10,000s, but there were 10,000s of divisions of 10,000s that all worshiped the man, Christ Jesus, when he came up out of, when he was led up out of the realm of the dead and followed the path of life and ascended into future world and entered into it as the man, Christ Jesus. All the innumerable angels worshipped him. And from then on, there's been a party and a feast and a festive occasion that we have already approached according to Hebrews 12, 12 to 24. 22 to 24, make that. And so... He entered into future world after God led him up from the realm of the dead, says Hebrews 13.20. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, is the key celebrity of the heavenly Jerusalem. The Father led his Son, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, up from the realm of the dead as a recognition of the blood of the everlasting covenant, which was poured out for many. Hebrews 12.24, Matthew 26.28, Matthew 20.28 in connection with 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6. The blood of Jesus Christ, which is in heaven, the blood of the new covenant is eloquent. How can blood be eloquent? Well, the blood of Abel spoke to God from the earth, from the ground. There's a blood that sprinkled the blood of Jesus that speaks to God from heaven that was shed on earth. It is an example of the fact that by the blood of Christ's cross, God reconciles the heavens and the earth and everything in them to himself. Colossians 1.20. You can't deny universal redemption and universal reconciliation if you do a little thing that I like to call read the Bible. Now, he entered into future world after God led him up from the realm of the dead. Psalm 16 expresses it from Jesus' own viewpoint. Show me the path of life. My flesh shall rest in hope. I've set you always before my face. Show me the path of life, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God showed him the path of life. Imagine God leading his son up from the realm of the dead. And then causing him to be elevated to his own right hand above the heavens. That's an infinite height above the heavens. The father led his son up from the dead in recognition of the blood of the everlasting covenant. The great shepherd of the sheep whose blood is said to be shed or poured out is also said to have his blood sprinkled both the shed and the sprinkled blood speak of something of metaphorical great significance the great shepherd of the sheep whose shed or poured out and sprinkled blood ratified an everlasting covenant is the same Jesus who is the mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled blood and the reference there is to a blood that has made atonement the blood of the lamb that is also sprinkled against the mercy seat as a propitiatory the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently of God's saving mercy than the blood of Abel 
For the blood of Jesus shed on earth was sprinkled, as it were, in heaven, and speaks in heaven as Abel's blood spoke from the ground and the soil of the earth, for it had been shed by Cain. The peace that was made through the blood of Christ's cross means that all things in the heavens and on earth are to be reconciled, and in one sense they have already been reconciled, therefore being justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We already have that peace. Romans 5.1. Today I have begotten you means today. I've crowned you with glory, the glory of a king and with the honor of a priest. For your throne, O God, is forever and ever and as we're going to learn, Lord willing, you are a priest forever, like Melchizedek. The word Melchizedek is a compound word. Malki, that equals king. Tzedek equals righteousness. King of righteousness. And the righteousness of which he is king is the saving act of God, a universally saving act of God. Malki Zedek. You are a priest forever like Malki Zedek, is what he's going to say. In fact, in Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, where it says that, it says that God salutes him as he does so. He salutes the Son and says, you are a priest through the age, like Melchizedek, Melchizedek. So he who says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, that is, as a king, says also you are a priest forever, like Melchizedek, Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110.4, LXX Septuagint, that is, Psalm 109.4, and then you go to Hebrews 5, 5, and 6. In Hebrews 5, 5, and 6, the declaration of kingly accession is repeated. He said it earlier. He says it again. The Messiah did not exalt himself. How about that for the mind of Christ? The Messiah did not exalt himself to become an archpriest, but the one who said to him, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. He's the one that said and exalted his son, Psalm 2-7. Hebrews 5-5 5, 5 then repeats Psalm 2-7 that we saw much earlier. In verse 6 of Hebrews 5, it also says in another place, with a divine salute, you are a priest through the age, like Melchizedek. Now I ask the question, why like Melchizedek? Well, it's not because Melchizedek was a priest through the whole age. That's not what he's talking about. It's because Melchizedek, the priest, was also a king. In Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek is called both king of Salem. King of Salem. You know what Salem is? Short for Jeru-Salem. Jeru-Shalem. 
It's a word, Salem, which is an anglicized form of shalom, peace, the city of peace. Jerusalem, he was the king of Jerusalem at the time. And he was priest of God Most High. So Salem is from Shalom and refers ahead to Jerusalem and not just to Jerusalem. That's not what it's pointing to ultimately. It's pointing to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king, as Psalm 48, 1-2 puts it, which is the Septuagint, Psalm 47, 2-3. Jesus also called it that in Matthew 5, 35. The city, listen carefully to it because we're going to name the year after this, the city of the great king. Abraham looked for that city all his life. He was happy to live in a tent, a tent without foundations, because he was looking for a city that had foundations. And he wasn't talking about the Jerusalem that is now. He was talking about the Jerusalem that is seen at the end of Revelation, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband, having 14 foundations, each foundation having the name of one of the 12 apostles inscribed upon it because the 12 apostles was a kind of seminary or seedbed of all of humanity. And the 12 gates had the 12 tribes inscribed upon them, the names of the 12 tribes. And the gates were open day and night all the time to admit the pilgrimage of the nations and the kings that poured into it. Talk about a universal Restoration in the city of peace. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So he's king of Salem, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he's the king of righteousness. So Melchizedek represented the king in whom righteousness and peace kissed each other. As Psalm 85.10 says, righteousness and peace have met together and kissed each other. And truth and mercy have sprung up from the earth. Mercy has met truth in Christ. The new Jerusalem then is the city for which Abraham and all the patriarchs looked. That's why they moved and traveled in tents without foundations. This is the city situated on the heavenly Mount Zion. This is the city of which we are already citizens according to Philippians 3.20 as opposed to the earthly-minded enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction in Philippians 3:18 and 19, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we expect a deliverer, a savior, soter, Jesus Christ, not Caesar, Jesus Christ, who shall come and change these bodies of humiliation of ours into bodies of glory like his own. He's able to do this, you know, because he also has the power to subdue everything under his feet. In Philippians 3.21, because you see, in 21 of Philippians 3, he's the one under whose feet God has subjected all things. The New Jerusalem, that's also Psalm 8, 4 through 6. So the New Jerusalem is the city for which Abraham and the patriarchs looked. They let that city come into their mind before they got there. That's what Jeremiah 51, 50 is all about. And that'll be the key verse, 
hopefully, of an upcoming series that may even transcend 2021. The New Jerusalem is the city for which Abraham and the patriarchs, patriarchs looked. This is the city of which we are already citizens. This is the city to which we have come already, says Hebrews 12.22. This is the heavenly Jerusalem which we are to let into our minds. A cosmopolitan way of thinking, an uranopolitan way of thinking as partakers of a heavenly calling. When we let this Jerusalem of the future come into our minds, it creates a heavenly metropolitan coalition of minds that are set on Christ, that are at peace and in love. This is the city on a hill. Ronald Reagan said that was America, and it's not America, but although America has been throughout history a kind of resort for people who do believe in Jesus Christ to freely live and exercise their faith up to a certain point. It seems to be disappearing now, though, that freedom. So the city on the hill in Matthew 5.14 is the city of the great king in Matthew 5.35. It's not America. But the companions and disciples of Jesus, wherever they are found and wherever they live, they're the salt of the earth and the lights of the world, and they are the city on the hill. Now, in a time of political division and of ideological divisiveness that creates hate, this metropolis, this city on a hill, is a solidarity of justified spirits, as Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 calls it. It's a unity of souls that are being delivered and preserved in peace. It's a coalition of hearts that have been made subjectively authentic. That's why we're not meeting. It's not a gathering of bodies that God is interested in. You can have a gathering of bodies in which there's divisiveness and divisions and slander and gossip and maligning and potential divisions that could ruin a church. So God intervenes and splits us up so that we can understand that he's after a coalition of cardias and hearts, a solidarity of renewed spirits and minds, an intersubjective fifth level of consciousness overtaken and controlled by love. That's what's important, and that's why Paul said his absence from Philippi was more important than his presence with them. In Philippians 2.12. Don't miss, don't miss the purpose of God for a year gone by. So, I've said it before. If God said, assemble together, and man said, don't, I'd be assembling together and obeying God rather than man. But I've heard God say, don't assemble together, because I got lessons to teach you that you would never learn if you were a gathering of bodies. And so I've seen beyond what a lot of pastors are seeing. I'm not going to fight in court to be able to meet. Not when God says I don't want you to meet because I got lessons for you to learn. 
that you could never learn. Just like Philippi learned lessons that they they could not have learned as well if Paul was present with them. Now, that's preaching. Let's get back to teaching. In and among faltering nations, God wants a coalition of hearts. And we may be scattered further than you've ever dreamed before in the near future. In a coalition of hearts, wherever they are, however they're scattered, and however the salt is shaken across the earth. God wants a coalition of hearts that have been made subjectively authentic and whose consciences have been purified by the atoning and cleansing and liberating blood of Jesus. In Romans 5.9, in Revelation 1, 5, and 6, 1 Peter 1, 18, and 19, Hebrews 10, 19, and following Colossians 1, 20, wherever you look. In and among faltering nations, there is an unapplauded and unlauded people, a people of God who have simply received God's saving mercy. That's all. We've simply received God's saving mercy. And we anticipate the same saving mercy for all of mankind and for all of creation. This is the kingdom of priests who have been washed from their sins and liberated from sin's tyranny by the blood of Jesus Christ and who have 24-7 access to his Father and to the throne from which grace from the God of all grace is constantly dispensed. In and among this nation, now I speak provincially as an American Christian, there is a people who shine as lights in the otherwise unillumined cosmos. And among all the nations are such a people. Their orientation is not politically right or ideologically left. Their orientation is vertical. They haven't let Washington into their minds. They haven't let Moscow into their minds. They haven't let Hollywood or Silicon Valley or New York, New York into their minds or Miami or Dubai or any other celebrated earthly city. Cities which are vulnerable to urban terrorists who smash and steal and hurt and kill, susceptible to revolutionary takeovers and lawlessness, incompetent governance, even utter demolition and destruction. They haven't let Beijing into their minds. They haven't even let historic Jerusalem into their minds. They have let the new Jerusalem come into their minds. Not just a heavenly city, but they've let the values of that city, eternal values, they've let the freedom of that city, true freedom, a conflation of divine and human free will, they've let the intersubjectivity, the interpersonal nature of that city, which is love, not just any kind of love, but the very love with which Jesus loved his Father and all of human beings and his enemies, a love that goes the temporal and the eternal distance. That's what comes into the mind when New Jerusalem comes into the mind. 
A man or a woman or a very young person or a family may be standing in the ruins of a once famous and exalted earthly city and be at perfect peace because their minds are on the celebrity of a city whose builder and maker is God. Because they have let the city for which Abraham looked by faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, they've looked for that city. Because he looked for this city by faith, he was entirely content to live in foundationless tents in a life without roots in this world. Abraham knew, as did all the heroes of faith, and most of all, as Jesus himself knew, that here we have no continuing city. You can call Rome the eternal city all day long. It's not a continuing city. It was Jesus, the source and completer of faith, Cities of this world on fire. Cities of this world, the inhabitants wiped out by plagues. Cities of this world ruined by war, by terrorism. Populations eradicated through biological, chemical, and atomic warfare. All of these are possible in a day like this. But here we have no continuing city. It was Jesus, the source and completer of faith, the prophet Messiah who predicted that not a stone would be left upon a stone of the vaunted temple in old Jerusalem. Those words must have sounded so unreal, so inauthentic, so lacking in genuineness. As his disciples said, look, master, look at these stones. Look at this reconstructed temple that cost billions, billions upon billions, maybe a trillion dollars in our time. Look at them. I'm telling you this, he said. Not one of these stones will be standing on another. It'll be all thrown down. What a killjoy he must have sounded like. What an unrealistic man. Well, the prophets all sounded like that. And yet, 40 years later, not a stone rested upon a stone. The abomination of desolation, an army of legions of Rome, surrounded that city, crushed it, decimated it, devastated it. The temple was destroyed. Jesus knew better than anyone that here we have no continuing city, even if it's Jerusalem of old. It was Jesus, the Son of Man, who said of himself, imagine this, foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No one knew that impermanence and that evanescence of this world better than the one whom the world did not receive. I'll say that again. No one knew the impermanence and the evanescence of this world better than the one whom the world did not receive. 
John 1, 10 and 11. Only he could make sense of this. And only one with an ear that can really hear can really make sense of what he meant. If you lose your life in this world, you'll find it. If you lose your life in this impermanent, evanescent world, that's a good thing. Because you find it. In a permanent world, in a permanent city, in a city that does continue forever, of which you're already a citizen. Why am I doing this message? What am I doing? Now, people have been asking that all my life. What are you doing? Or even better, what the hell are you doing? What am I doing? What the hell am I doing here? Why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I doing this message? I'm trying to set the tone for 2021. I'm letting God strike the sea of another year before us. Before us is a sea called the Red Sea of 2021. I'm letting God strike it with his staff. And you know what he says to us as we face this year? Stand back. And watch the salvation of the Lord. I'm letting God strike the sea of another year before us. So that it may open for us. So that we may stand still. And watch the salvation of the Lord. And the salvation of the Lord's name is Jesus. To watch the salvation of the Lord is to see Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus. Because he will save Matthew 1.21. The salvation of the Lord is Jesus with him as our leader, not Moses. With him as the pioneer of our salvation. We'll walk between the rising waters on dry land. As we survey the New Testament, it strikes us, it strikes me anyways... That the book of Revelation has as its, at its prophetic peak the descent of the new and heavenly Jerusalem adorned as a bride for her husband. A city with 12 foundations. Remember, Abraham who wandered around in communities of tents, foundationless tents. A little peg would hold it into the ground. You pull up the peg, you move. He looked for a city that had foundations, not like the tents they lived in. It's amazing when we finally see the city, the vision of the city, that it has 12 foundations, bejeweled foundations. In fact, made of a jewel that we would normally decorate something with. Inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles, with 12 gates, each inscribed by the names of the tribes of Israel. Three on each side, always open, always welcoming. That's why I say our community and coalition of souls is an inviting community. Our gates are open. The gates of the city are open. Three on each of four sides, always welcoming as the pilgrims pilgrims from the nations, led by the kings of the earth with their glory, make their way into her. 
There's no temple in that city, said John. I saw no temple in it at all. Because the God of, God, God of all grace and the Lamb are its temple. There is no power and light company and system of artificial illumination. Because the Lamb is the lamp that lights the city. A friend of mine said he didn't like the word glory, that we're going to be glorified. And I said, why wouldn't you like the word glory? All it means is that you and I are going to reach the fullness of what our true humanity is. To be glorified is to reach the real humanity that God intended for us to be. Deathless, incorruptible, imperishable, like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. You don't like that glory? I love that glory. That glory is going to permeate throughout the new heavens and the new earth and light up the city called New Jerusalem. Let it come into your mind. To let that Jerusalem come into your mind is to let the light of hope in, the mind of Christ in. It's really the city that never sleeps. That's not New York. And Chicago is not my kind of town, according to the Lord. It's the New Jerusalem. In the kaleidoscopic, peaceful collision of cinematic visions that we call the Book of Revelation, that's what I call it, a kaleidoscopic collision of cinematic visions, we see in Revelation 14, the Lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000. That's the multiples of 12. 12 is all about governance and grace and the governance of grace. And any multiple of 12 speaks not of a literal number, but of the universal governance of grace. This is all mankind. This isn't 144,000 lucky lottery winners that knock on doors and pass out Watchtower magazines. This is 144,000 with the Lamb who represent the innumerable company of redeemed humanity under the governance, governance of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a hypocritical governor or mayor. He is the king of the great city. In a climactic allegory in Galatians, these guys can't resist the new Jerusalem. They've let it into their mind. Paul can't resist it. John, the beloved disciple, can't resist it. The prophets can't resist it. In Galatians, in the climactic allegory of Galatians, preceding the all-powerful exhortation for the reader to stand fast in the freedom for which Christ freed us, the apostle teacher contrasts the Jerusalem that is now and that's associated with Mount Sinai and Hagar the slave woman, and he contrasts it with Jerusalem that is above, which is a suggestion that it's situated on the heavenly Mount Zion with her children, which are freeborn. He concludes by saying that the Jerusalem above is our mother, that she is free, and that we, as the children of the free woman, are free. This is a freedom that human governments cannot guarantee, that human armies need not preserve. I'll say it again. This is a freedom that human governments cannot guarantee, that human armies need not preserve. 
This is freedom indeed. It's the freedom that comes from knowing the truth that is the Son of God. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, but you shall know the Son and the Son will make you free indeed. That's John 8.32 and 8.36. And entirely in keeping with our citizenship in heaven, which Paul espouses, is the encouragement, and I'm moving to a close here, the encouragement that we set our minds not on the things on the earth, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right side of God. Why? Because your life is hid there. When it says your life is hid with Christ in God, it means it's hid with Christ who's at the right hand of God. It's hid in the heavenlies. You died. Your life begins with an obit. You died with Christ when Christ died. Your life is hid with Christ in God, at the right hand of God, in the heavenlies. That's letting Jerusalem come into your mind. Set your mind on things above. Not only on things above, but on him who is above. We see Jesus. Christ is seated at the right side of God. Colossians 3, 2. The eyes of our heart don't look left or right. They stay on Jesus. Our eyes are fixed, and like the hippies used to say, right on. And the LXX says in Proverbs 4.25, the English rendition says, let your eyes look right on. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Proverbs 4.25, kept fixed on Jesus despite the wind and the waves. Though it's 2021, we still need 2020 vision. In the eyes of our heart, Ephesians 1.18, so that we can see Jesus. The closer we approach the city called the heavenly Jerusalem, and oh, how many saints on their deathbeds and in their death moments, their dying moments, have said to loved ones nearby, I see a city, a glorious city. I can't believe how beautiful. I can't believe how unspeakably beautiful it is. They're about to find out that what lights it up is its primary celebrity, the great king. It's the city of the great king. Now, not only saints have seen it, but people that never believed in Jesus see it at the last moment and go, oh, they know they're going there. It's mercy that gets you there. Not a life of sainthood. Thank God. If it was a life of sainthood, I'd be worried. Now, the closer we approach the city called the heavenly Jerusalem, the better we see Jesus and the better we hear the eloquent voice of his blood. Have you ever heard blood speak. People who study DNA hear it speak in a sense, in a metaphorical sense. It says everything about a family history, maybe, an ancestry, or a proneness to disease. Have you ever heard blood speak? God heard the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. What was it crying out for? Some say vengeance. I say mercy. 
But there's a greater mercy that the blood of Jesus Christ cries out for, a blood that's sprinkled in heaven in a metaphorical sense. It cries out for mercy, not just for Cain, but for all creation. So, the closer we approach the city, the better we see Jesus, the clearer we hear the eloquent voice of his blood calling out from heaven. Hebrews 2, T-O-O, has the heavenly Jerusalem in its prominent place for our viewing pleasure. We saw it in our Christmas message. Let's look again at it in our New Year's message, which is also increment 87. It's Hebrews 12, 23. On the contrary, he says, that's meaning we haven't approached Mount Sinai with its thunderings and lightnings and threatenings. And even if a beast touches it, it'll be pierced through with an arrow. And even Moses exceedingly feared and quaked. We haven't come to that mountain. You have approached instead Hebrews 12, 23, 22 and 23, you have approached Mount Zion. That is the city of the living God, a heavenly mountain, not an earthly one. The heavenly Jerusalem, please notice that. The heavenly Jerusalem, it's populated with what? Myriads of angels in celebratory assembly. Verse 22, the community of the firstborn. This refers all the way back to Hebrews 1.6 where the firstborn is worshipped by all the angels of God as he enters this world. The community of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Jesus said, don't rejoice that demons, scorpions, and poisonous snakes are under your feet and that you have power over the demonic realm, that's not something to rejoice about. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. It's inscribed in heaven, like the apostles' names on the foundations. You've come to God, and my translation, as I've said and explained before, the justifying judge of all. He's the judge of all, but he's the justifier, according to Romans 8.33, so he is the justifying judge of all. He justifies but rectifies as he justifies. So the oppressor gets the righteousness that he lacked, and the oppressed gets the justice that she lacked. And the spirits of the justified made complete. Difference between us and them? We're the spirits of the justified, but we ain't made complete. So the Bible says, let us go on to completion in Hebrews 6.1. And then finally, in 24, it says, the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. When it says in 25, let us listen to the one who speaks from heaven, it's talking not only about Jesus at the right hand of the Father speaking, it's talking about the blood of Jesus speaking from heaven, about an a reconciliation of the heavens and the earth. Much more to say on that down the road. But this is all an allusion to Psalm 48. And this is where I'm going to name our new year. At least for us, it's just a way of speaking. It doesn't mean that this is the official title on everybody's calendar. It just means 
what I like to call a year. It's coming up. This is an allusion to Psalm 48, 1 through 2, which in the Greek text that's used by the Hebrew writer, it's, Isaiah, it's uh, Psalm 47, 2 and 3. This is my translation from the Greek text. Great is the Lord and exceedingly praiseworthy in the city of our God. Relate that to 2021 of Second Chronicles. Praiseworthy. Great is the Lord and exceedingly praiseworthy in the city of our God. Great is the Lord reminds me of the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. Great is the Lord and exceedingly praiseworthy in the city of our God. His holy mountain. The city is the mountain. The mountain, it's a mountain city. It's called Mount Zion, the city. And there it is, city is Paulus there. This is where we're going. Paulus, P-O-L-I-S, P-O-L-I-S, Paulus. You put that together with Uranos for heaven, and you get Uranopolis, Uranos plus Polis, Uranopolis, which is a heavenly city. You're already a citizen of it. Let it come into your mind. It's governance, it's values into your mind. Great is the Lord and exceedingly praiseworthy in the city of our God, his holy mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. The city of the great king. The city of the great king. Well situated on the northern slopes of heavenly Zion, the source of joyful celebration for the whole earth. Why for the whole earth? Because when earth joins with heaven, there's joy. So in closing, this is the city that we've approached. The city that we've come to already. It's the city of the great king. <clears throat> the king whose throne is forever. And who is also a priest through the age. This is the king like Melchizedek. The king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, whose throne is forever and who is a priest through the age. So let's do this. Let's call 2021 the year of the great king. That's what I'm going to call it. The year of the great king. As we continue to see Jesus crowned with royal glory and priestly honor in the new and heavenly Jerusalem. And as we let the new Jerusalem into our mind, to let this new Jerusalem into our mind is to let the mind of Jesus be in us and to let his blood purify our conscience from guilt and fear that we may serve the living God as kings and priests while still in the proving ground of this present waning age. So Hebrews 3.12, I haven't left, lost our anchor here. Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Instead, keep encouraging one another every day as long as it's called today in order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. For the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we simply hold firmly the reality until the end that we had at the beginning. 
as it is said today if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Refuse to listen as they did in the incident of embitterment that led to provocation. So here the emphasis falls more heavily on the word today than other passages. But be assured, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, into and throughout 2021. As the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan of Deuteronomy 32-39 says, and listen carefully as we close, See now that I am he who is and who was, and I am he who will be in the future, and there is no other God besides me. This is Jesus Christ speaking, who is the I am yesterday and today and in the future. He is already in future world as our forerunner. He's already in 2021 waiting for you. The city where we find him is a continuing city, an abiding city, an indestructible city because it's his city, the city of the great king. It will always be today. And Jesus Christ is the same. Today, today, if you hear his voice then, all throughout 2021, if you hear his voice, don't refuse to listen as they did in the incident of embitterment that led to provocation in a time when this nation has provoked the living God into acting. Will he act? as he did in the time of that generation in the desert? Or will he act in a way that redeems and restores this nation and many other nations in the world and, in fact, redeems history? And throughout 2021, if you hear his voice, realize that it's the voice of your great king. In fact, Let 2021 be called the year of the great king. We only look for the city to see the great king. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We do look forward to seeing the great king. And many of us who have lived in this assembly have already crossed over and have seen him. We see him, Father, with the eyes of the heart. And my prayer can only be for 2021, for this assembly and for believers across this world, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened and that we would be able to, in fact, see with the eyes of our heart the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance in Christ, and the power that raised Jesus from the dead, because that's the power of our livingness. In other words, and in short, Father, that we may see Jesus with 2020 vision in 2021. We ask this in his name. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. We ask it in his name. Amen.